My family is in Florida, and I'm in New York. Kevin McAllister, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. He's kind of crazy, she's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is divorced, the other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a silver linings play cast. Hello, everybody. Oh, it's yeah. Jamie Ward, and welcome to the Silver Linings Playcast. As far as I know, it's the only podcast solely devoted to Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and to the Silver Linings Playbook, the book. This is our seventh episode. We've had some great episodes uh, our last couple episodes. We had some very special guests. We're going to have some more exciting guests coming up on future episodes. I actually already had an episode lined up for this week, which was going to be me just comment watching the movie Silver Linings Playbook and commenting on it. But uh, we have we have something more pressing to discuss this week. I found just an egregious and disgusting news article. Not, I mean, it's I don't even want to call this news. This. This is an article from November 20th, 2012, the year Silver Linings Playbook came out, and it is a film review uh, from The New Yorker. The title of the article is The Book on Silver Linings Playbook by Richard Brody. This is an article in The New Yorker, The New Yorker magazine, if you're not familiar um, it is a magazine and it is pretty pretentious already. I don't know. Maybe somebody, I'm just saying the demographic that reads the New Yorker and the demographic of people that listen to this podcast probably doesn't overlap a whole lot. I'm not 100% sure of that, but I'm pretty sure a lot of people do read the New Yorker and a lot of people do not listen to my podcast, making that two completely different groups of people. As for the quality of The New Yorker, I can't attest to that because I don't read it. I have flipped through it a couple times, and I noticed that they have cartoons. They are difficult for me to understand, they're probably for people that read more books or watch better movies than I did, so I don't. Here's here's the deal. I'm not going to weigh in on that because I'm not the best person to. I'm not familiar with it. So I really feel like Mr. Richard Brody, who wrote this review of Silver Linings Playbook, probably shouldn't have weighed in on, on Silver Linings Playbook because when you hear you hear what he wrote about it, it's, hmm, it just doesn't really reflect somebody that saw the movie. He, he's supposed to be a film critic, and I just, I don't see it. Um, he doesn't like good movies, right? Uh, he, he has, let's see, let's, let me, let me talk about him. Now, I, I don't want to disparage him too much. This podcast isn't about uh, talking poorly about other people. I mean, that would go against everything that the character Pat really stands for, right? In the book, The Silver Linings Playbook, they don't say this in the movie, and it's such a great thing, too, that they really focus on in the book. 
Because Pat, in part of his attempt to be a better person, he has this whole personal mantra of, I, uh, I, I need to work on being kind instead of right. And I think that maybe Mr. Brody should do some reading. Let's, let's go over his review first so that we have a baseline of what we're going to be talking about. And I'm sorry if I'm sort of overpronouncing my S's a lot. I'm just, that is the way I do it. All right, let's go. Uh, The name of the article, The Book on Silver Linings Playbook by Richard Brody. The best thing about David O. Russell's new movie is also the worst. It may be the year's most artificial movie, more manifestly an impossible contrivance than the flying vehicles of The Dark Knight Rises or Iron Man's Space Leap in The Avengers. A more apt title would be Sid Field's Playbook, named for the screenwriting teacher who delivers in his book, Screenplay, this advice. First create the context of character, then fill the context with content. First, define the need of your character. What does your character want to achieve or get during the course of your screenplay? Here's Ernest Hemingway on the subject in a 1934 letter to F. Scott Fitzgerald. If you take real people and write about them, you cannot give them other parents than they have. They are made by their parents and what happens to them. You cannot make them do anything they would not do. You can take you or me or Zelda or Pauline or Hadley or Sarah or Gerald, but you have to keep them the same and you can only make them do what they would do. You can't make one be another. Invention is the first thing, but you cannot invent anything that would not actually happen. God damn it. If you took liberties with people's pasts and futures that produce not people, but damned marvelous faked case histories. End quote. Silver Linings Playbook is filled with fake cases, histories, which is apt given that its protagonist's story is launched as a case history. Pat Solitano, Bradley Cooper, a high school history teacher, is released from a mental hospital after beating, uh, sorry, uh, after beating his wife's lover nearly to death to the care of his parents, Robert De Niro and Jackie Weaver. While seeking to win back his wife, he begins a relationship with Tiffany, Jennifer Lawrence, a young widow who is also under medical care for mental illness. She promises to help him get back with his wife if he'll take part in a dance competition with her. Meanwhile, Pat's father, Pat Sr., a football fanatic with anger management issues and a compulsive gambling working as a bookie, recruits his son as a good luck charm for their beloved Philadelphia Eagles, but also place a heavy bet on Pat and Tiffany's results in the dance competition. In other words, the plot is utterly ridiculous. The characters are created merely to fulfill its requirements, and whatever charm and integrity the movie possesses issues with from the actors, who do their damnedest to lend to their script bots flesh and soul. The Hemingway quote is again apt, because early on in the film, when Pat reads A Farewell to Arms, a book that's on his estranged wife's classroom curriculum, he throws it out the window, ranting about the unnecessary heartbreak of the ending. With it, the character and Russell are throwing all Hemingway out the window because of Hemingway, the 
irresistible unity of character brings about his own heartbreak. The premise of the movie, of course, is the possibility of change, of bringing about happy endings through the force of will. If there were substance to the movie, it would respond to the question of whether character is destiny or whether a person can change and still be himself, be true to himself, or whether, in fact, a current iteration of a person, broken and full of blame, may in fact be a false one, with the true and better self waiting to emerge from better circumstances. Would the movie took on such a question? Would that, would that the movie took on such questions? Rather, it starts with its own, soothing answers to them, and for all the loud and roiling action leaves no doubt about the beginning, from the beginning, about whether it's going, where it's going. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm reading this, uh, and it's, the print's kind of small. That's not part of the article. Back to the article. The deterministic world of the movie is script settled, and it's all thumbs up. Silver Linings Playbook is the second movie of the season to wear its marketing so blatantly on its sleeve, to integrate its commercial positioning so forthrightly into the story. The other is Skyfall. First, the story challenges the medical establishment and efficacy of medical science in bringing about results. Pat doesn't take his medication because he doesn't like how it makes him feel and because it makes him feel and because it makes him gain weight, whereas he wants to be svelte and buff in order to win his wife back. His mental health depends, and guess where this is going in the story, on his ability to control his behavior through force of will and the ability to make emotional connections based on empathetic and mature choices, as if mental illness itself might not be an insurmountable obstacle to those connections and choices. The movie will be a hit with those who think that hyperactivity is just a failure of discipline and depression merely a bad attitude, to the tune of Accentuate the Positive, with its references to Jonah and the Whale, Noah and the Ark. Without a word about religion in the script, Silver Linings Playbook advocates a faith-based view of mental illness, an overall of emotional redemption. The plot, after all, turns on gambling, a parlay in which two results are connected, the outcome of a football game, over which, of course, the betters have no influence, and of a dance competition, which depends on the exertion of the competition, competitors. Gambling and faith have long been connected, from Pascal's wager through guys and dolls, and in Silver Linings Playbook, the Philadelphia Eagles are divine, the belief in their power is the article of faith, and superstition plays a role of ritual in their service. Yes, there's a moment where superstition is confronted by reason, but I leave it to the viewers to see the results of that only apparent recalibration. What's more, the very fact of the mental institution embodied by the doctor's decisions, shown as misguided, even cruel, about the patient's release is presented as an unwarranted collective authority. It's the second anti-institution movie of the season, the other being Cloud Atlas, with its sadistic old-age home. Silver Linings Playbook presents a personal, faith-and-family-centered approach to holding a mental illness in abeyance. Whether the notion is accurate or not, it is very much a consistent and coherent point of view, under the guise of free-spirited and generous look at quirky behavior. It embraces and endorses a populist conservative doctrine. On the other hand, 
Viewers who find themselves sympathetic to its doctrine are unlikely to be any more put off by the story's artifice than they are by any CGI tentpole. The Hemingway notion may be out of fashion, but it was responsible for the great artistic success of Russell's 2010 movie, The Fighter, which anchored even its most antic moments in the loam of life with inner depths, wider connections, and far-reaching consequences. In Silver Linings Playbook, Russell makes a movie of an overt symbolism such as should be such such as should be no problem for audiences accustomed as we are to cinematic artifice. His bold inside out unfolding of a framework instead of a story would have been even more audacious audacious if he hadn't sought to camouflage it under sentimental performances. They're loud but still conventional. So that's the article. And I just, uh, you know, so this is what we're going to do. Like I said, I had several other podcast themes that we were going to discuss. We are going to address this article point by point because he is so wrong. So Richard Brody is an American film critic who has written for The New Yorker since 1999. He grew up in New York. He received a BA from Princeton University in comparative literature, lived in Paris after graduating, he uh, was a, a filmmaker for a short time, and he is the author of a biography of French New Wave director Jean-Luc Godard. Now, all of that, uh, that's, that's um, good for him. Guess what? I went to film school, too. In fact, I went for film and not comparative literature. I don't know what comparative literature is. So if one of us is, is more qualified to talk about a movie, I think it's the person who went to school for movie and not the guy who went for comparative literature and unless comparative literature is literature where you compare things like movie reviews, in which case he is then qualified to write movie reviews, but I still just don't think he should have. I have a familiarity with, so, so Richard Brody is clearly a big fan of French new wave cinema He's a big fan of like Jean-Luc Godard. Uh, I I am too, so I get that. We could see eye to eye on that. Let's start at where where Rich and I are similar. We both like French New Wave cinema. Let's now take a deviation of where we're different. I uh, don't hold every film I see to the standard of French New Wave cinema. And if you are familiar with French New Wave I could probably just say new wave, but I don't want you to think about uh, the music genre from the eighties, but I don't hold everything to that standard. Those film, that film style is wonderful. That, that era film is, is great and it serves its purpose, but uh, there's other kinds of films too. Silver Linux playbook was an American film based on a book, which it is clear that Rich did not read either because there are some things he would understand better about it if he did. I don't think he did any research on this actual movie before reviewing it. He just pulled from knowledge from other things that he knew, and this will become more clear. His his big Wikipedia entry is that in 2012, uh, he, was, he was asked during the Sight and Sound Critics poll, I have never heard of that, 
might be a thing. <laughs> Probably is. I don't do a lot of research on these things. Uh, his 10 favorite movies. So I'm going to read you his 10 favorite movies in no particular order. Gertrude, The Great Dictator, Husbands, Journey to Italy, King Lear, The Last Laugh, Marnie, Playtime, The Rules of the Game, Shoah. I don't know how to pronounce that last one. S-H-O-A-H. Shoah. Um, show. Those, those are not my favorite movies. My top 10 favorite movies are probably in no particular order. Everyone says I love you. Goodfellas. Top Gun. Mean Girls. Tim Burton's Batman. I'm going to count Goodfellas on there twice because there's a lot of different things about it. Uh, I'm also going to say Goodfellas slash The Departed because I don't want to take up two different things. Clearly, Silver Linings Playbook is way, way up there. Bull Durham is one of my my top favorite movies. Hey, you know what? I'll put a... a well, no, I was going to be all pretentious but you know what you don't you don't lower to other people's standard you you lift up so i'm not going to take a cheap shot and mention uh, my favorite french new wave film because it wouldn't make my top 10 also i'm not i'm not a pretentious film film snob i just anyway let's let's keep moving i'm going to keep saying something else okay Richard Brody has a background. He was making films for a little while before he got into film reviewing full time. If you check IMDb, which is the internet movie database, Richard Brody has eight entries. Oh, wait, but there's a Jamie Ward that has nine entries. So just in overall quantity, I win. Also, if you look up Richard's, his things are not rated that well. They're like four and five stars out of 10. Mine are unrated because not enough people voted on them. Meaning that I have neither a perfect nor flawed score. Anyway, I'm only, I'm judging this quantitatively, not qualitatively right now. So let's, let's start breaking down this article. Start off. The best thing about David O. Russell's new movie is the worst. It may be the year's most artificial movie, more manifestly the impossible contrivances than the flying vehicles and the dark Knight rises or iron man space leap and the Avengers. He so he goes, it may be the year's most artificial movie. One, one, Rich, all movies are artificial, except documentaries, right? This is a fictional movie that is based on a book that is fiction. Most movies are. Guess what? David O. Russell's previous movie, The Fighter, which you mentioned in your own article, based on a true story. So it, if, if you're judging, like, one... Movies can be artificial. It's storytelling. Hemingway and Fitzgerald both wrote fiction 
sometime, right? Okay, so let's let's just you know decide to um, you know I don't want to I don't want to split hairs on this, but whenever whenever a movie comes out, people actually enjoy fictional movies usually the most. You remember, the superheroes are huge now, right? I remember when the X Men movie came out, the first the first like of the new generation of comic book movies, the X-Men movie. Right. And some of the comments that people got were like, Oh, they, they look cool, but they don't, you know, the, the actors don't look exactly like the characters did in the comics. You know why? Because the comics were drawn. They were pictures and the movie featured real life people. You're not going to find people that look like pictures unless you're going to make an animated movie. It was a live action. So yeah, Hugh Jackman does not look like a cartoon. He looks like Hugh Jackman. He does look a little bit like a cartoon in The Greatest Showman. Not a problem. Different style movie. But guess what? Also fiction. Well, it's kind of like, okay, well, I don't want to take away from my own argument. So let's move on. The next paragraph of the article a more apt title would be Sid Field's Playbook, named for the screenwriting teacher who delivers in his book, Screenplay, this advice. First create the con... Okay, so, yes. Sid Field, if you listeners are not familiar, wrote basically like the, the quintessential book on screenplay writing. When you go to film school, I actually did not read that book. I, it was not assigned to me, but if if you're trying to get into screenwriting and you're not going to take a curriculum or anything, basically, or most other screenwriters will recommend just like pick up Sid Field's, Sid Field's uh, book screenplay. It teaches you about the format. It teaches you about the, the structure and theory. And basically because, because most of writing is, is reading and doing it. You honestly don't have to go to film school. There's not much that it gives you other than if you were a person that likes to learn in that type of learning environment, it gives you that structure and curriculum to sort of help guide you. I enjoyed it. I probably wouldn't go again, given a, a second opportunity. You amass a lot of debt. And if you're going into the entertainment industry, you're probably not going to make it all back for a very, very long time. But basically, you know, so I get it. Sid Field playbook, little little play on words. Nice job. Creates characters out of context. You know what? You might as well have made a reference to Pat Saves a Cat by Blake Snyder. The Cat in the Hat by Dr. Seuss. You know? Um, all, all of these books uh, have, you know tell you about different things to do in, in movies, you learn all the rules so that you can break them. Just because Sid Field says it doesn't mean that it's, it's gospel. It's a great place to start. Making movies is art. So yes, there's a science and learn the science of how to make the movie, but then learn how to paint and learn how to make it really good. I was thinking um, that, that his, his complaint is he, he says that uh, the characters, basically he feels like the characters are given a problem 
and it is way too easy to see what they want. This is first define the need of your character. What does your character want to achieve or get done during the course of your screenplay? Well, guess what? That's storytelling. That's the number one, you know, piece of advice people tell you to improve your writing. Make sure your character has a want in every scene and is doing everything to get that want. That's the hero's journey. That's Dan Harmon's story circle. That's that's storytelling, mythology. It's everything, every story, the conflict can be boiled down to a character wanting something and achieving it. Otherwise, we're just going to watch security cam footage of people sitting in a waiting room. So here's some other movies that uh, are, you know, very, very clearly about what the character wants because they even put it in the title or not like wants. That's, that's a poor description of, of my list that I just made. Uh, what I'm going to give you is a list of movies that literally explain what they're about in the title. And, and Silver Linings Playbook is not on this list because its title is far more metaphorical and symbolic than any of the credit that this guy is giving it. So how about this? You guys ever heard about a movie called Dirty Dancing? It is a movie about dancing dirty. The Little Mermaid? That's the name of a movie. And it is not a movie about a big fish. There's also a movie called Big Fish. Guess what? Not about a little mermaid. The Nightmare Before Christmas? Oh, what is this? Maybe it is a nightmare. When does it take place? I don't know. Before Christmas? It doesn't take place on Valentine's Day. A movie about Valentine's Day. Or New Year's Eve. A movie about New Year's Eve. Silver Linings Playbook. What what does that mean? We discussed that in a previous episode. Look look that up. I'll I'll link it to you in the show notes if you need to, you know, find out about it. I think it's up to interpretation. Silver Linings Playbook could have several metaphorical meanings. There could be a literal meaning. You know, another good title for the movie Silver Linings Playbook. It could have been called The Matrix because uh, it's, you know, about these people that are living in parameters, you know, like, like in the confines of family and the mental health situations. And also there's running also just because I don't know. I'm so livid that I, I might not make the most coherent arguments of, of my life, but I don't even think I need to because his is so his article is so pretentious and ridiculous that I you know only the the slightest amount of what what do they call that in a in a courtroom um, you know the I'm, I can't think it's not suspension of disbelief but it's a plausible plausible doubt. I'm blanking on the word. I should not be a writer. I'm not a writer. I write. I'm I'm not a writer. So here is the quote that he he gives from Ernest Hemingway. Here's Ernest Hemingway on the subject in a 1934 letter to F. Scott Fitzgerald. One, also, F. Scott Fitzgerald was Hemingway's mentor. 
right? So including a out-of-context quote from a letter from Hemingway to F. Scott Fitzgerald is like taking a quote from early Ralph Macchio and saying, you know, that he said this to Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid and then trying to act like, oh, it was this movie about this American kid who was teaching this old Japanese guy about life. No. Let's let's just drop all the jokes for a second. The movie The Karate Kid was about a Japanese guy that taught the the young kid from New Jersey, who and it actually wasn't even that young when it was filmed. He just looked young. Uh, it, it was about him teaching this kid karate and then about life. But you could take an out-of-context quote which is exactly like what this Hemingway letter is from. I'm actually working on reading a call, uh, farewell to arms right now. And there's some very interesting forewords in it. No disrespect to Hemingway himself. He was one of the great American authors. Apparently him and Fitzgerald had a lot. They, they were best friends. And like I said, him uh, Fitzgerald was Hemingway's mentor in a lot of ways but they sort of started arguing about the end of Hemingway's book. Fitzgerald actually suggested a more positive interpret ending to it. Uh, apparently uh, author historians have found notes from Hemingway's writing. And there's, I think about 40 different potential endings that he wrote for his book, a farewell to arms before finally deciding on the, the ending that it actually has. And we will be going into all of these books in great detail in future episodes. In fact, the next book I'm about to bring up is, is what we were going to start on. We were going to go down uh, Nikki's reading list, her summer reading list and discuss why all those books were there and about them and how they tie into the movie and the book. But right now we are just addressing Richard Brody's review of silver linings playbook. So the book that I do want to talk about is briefly, not in as great detail as we're going to go into in a, in a future episode, is Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. In the book, The Silver Linings Playbook, Pat is actually reading The, the Bell Jar and not A Farewell to Arms. He actually reads several books in the book, but in this scene... Where, where he's reading a depressing book and then it sort of it sort of is like part of the inciting incident that gets him going crazy and confronting his parents and realizing that life is tragic and he wants to overcome that. He's reading The Bell Jar. And I have some theories on why they switched that out from the book to the movie version of Silver Linings Playbook. I think it's weird though because I think The Bell Jar would have worked beautifully as well. It might just be that it's not as well known. It has been banned by some schools for different things. It's a lot more controversial for reasons, for fantastic reasons. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. I just finished it about a week or so ago, and it is so good. And, and the really fascinating thing is, if you read these different books, both on Nikki's uh, summer reading curriculum, or just, I mean, I think if you're an author, Matthew Quick, the author of Silver Linings Playbook, he's a great author. He's a very, he's a well-respected author who has many great books. I think when I was discussing the, the title Silver Linings Playbook, we talked about, I 
believe, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's like 10 of his books are all on lists or like bestsellers or something. Anyway, I would definitely, definitely trust the writing of Matthew Quick over Richard Brody. But there, so let's, let's get me back on topic because I don't have a guest to keep me on topic right now. So sorry. Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. Um, one of the things that is discussed in this little out of context quote from Ernest Hemingway is him saying, you can't take characters and then make stuff up about them. One, that's why I'm bringing up Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar. If you have any familiarity with it, yes, it is true. It is, it is like, it's sort of about Sylvia's life. However, it is written as a fictional narrative. She did exactly what Hemingway has said, eh, you really shouldn't do. And you know what? It's a pretty respected book. So how many of y'all know how Sylvia Plath died and how many of y'all know how Ernest Hemingway died? And we'll just figure out if one of them is more famous than the other to you. See? That's... I realize that's not the greatest book. Okay. Oh, another good another good title that Silver Linings Playbook the movie could have had. Face Off. They could have called the movie Face Off. And I think there's a, there's a couple of reasons. One, in a literal sense, there's, there's several... There's a competition. There's the football game. There's people facing off. There's a dance competition, which is a dance face-off. You also have these people that are putting up these fake faces, these masks, these metaphorical masks, uh, you know, like a quote from the mask where Ben Stein plays a psychologist and, you know, he talks to Jim Carrey's character, Stan Liepkes, and he's like, we all wear masks, metaphorically speaking. That, and right? And that's what's going on here. I think that's actually what most therapy is, right? It's like we go into our therapists with masks on. That's how we want our therapist to see us. And then it's their job to help us take off the mask. That Most of the, the starting therapy sessions, and I can tell you this uh, very firsthand, it's something that I'm sure Mr. Brody has no idea about because I'm sure he has no problems at all living his, his rich, fancy life, making movies in France and, and stuff. But the, the first couple sessions in a therapy, you know, maybe even more than couple are probably not even going to be about the issues that you go in there to talk about. I mean, they might, they, they clearly want to know why you're there, but they're trying to get information that helps give them the keys to unlocking all those, you know, confines that you put put yourself in and those chains that you put yourself in. So they're, so, you know, uh, Dr. Cliff Patel, he's really just trying to help, Bradley Cooper in the beginning take his face off so that he can get to know the real Pat Solitano. Let's get back to the article. Silver Linings Playbook is filled with fake case histories. We addressed that. It is a fictional movie. Of course it's fake case histories. If it wasn't, then it would be a historical piece, which is apt given the protagonist's story is launched as a case history. Exactly. Again, Pat Solitano, Bradley Cooper, a high school history teacher, is released from a mental hospital after beating his wife's lover nearly to death. 
to the care of his parents, Robert De Niro and Jackie Weaver. <laughs> and what also, okay. So little side note, how, uh, Pat Peoples, the name of Pat from the book, the Silver Lines playbook, as opposed to the movie, Pat Peoples, how great of a rest of a professional wrestling gimmick would that be? I could totally see that, you know, coming into the ring facing the undertaker is Pat Peoples, you know, and he comes down wearing an Eagles jersey and his finishing move could be the Excelsior and whereas where he just throws the other wrestler upwards and uh, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Okay, back to the article. While seeking to win his back his wife, he begins a relationship with Tiffany, Jennifer Lawrence, a young widow who is also under medical care for mental illness. She promises to help him get back with his wife if it'll take if he'll take part in a dance competition with her. Now that is a gross oversimplification of the movie. It's about a, a guy who beats his wife's ex-wife's lover nearly to death and then he starts a relationship with Tiff. Also, too, he begins a relationship with Tiffany. And that is a huge theme of this podcast is trying to figure out when that happened. I would love to know when Mr. Brody thinks that happened. He probably thinks it happened at the beginning like a stupid man, too, who doesn't understand the nuance of relationships or emotional weight or the difference between actions and intent. Probably knows nothing about women, despite having lived in France. Uh, I can't imagine any of the new wave cinema would have helped him. Um, Every time I watch that, I'm even way more confused about women than when I started all I know is that sometimes they like France and stuff. And I get it. Uh, France has cheese and wine. People love those. And But I just can't believe he would reduce a beautiful movie. One, guess what, Rich? The screenplay was nominated for an Academy Award. The Academy of Film Arts and Sciences or whatever they call it, is made up of professionals from a wide variety of roles across Hollywood. Writers, directors, different people. Uh, you have experience in all of those things. And it looks like all of those professionals felt that it was at least nominatable for Best Adapted Screenplay at the 85th Academy Awards. So I'm going to listen to the mass consensus on it was pretty good. Also, I think it should have won. I, I've actually not seen Argo and I do not remember if when I did the episode on the 85th Academy Awards, if I was acting like I have, I have not seen it. I do know that Argo, uh, the title Argo comes from the fake screenplay that the characters, uh, and they're not characters. Oh, guess what? Argo based on a true story too. So if you want, if you want to review a movie for its accuracy, on how much it the characters are realistic, go judge Argo. Plus, it won film of the year that year. Best movie, best picture. So go go hold that movie to unrealistic standards with your fake criteria on what a movie should be. 
gross oversimplification of a film. It's just absolutely disgusting commentary on a film. You know, it's it's like saying the movie There Will Be Blood is about milkshakes. It's it's so well, that is a fantastic movie. There will be blood. I just rewatched it recently. That is such a deep movie, sort of like Silver Linings Playbook. It's about a lot of things. And if I was to say it was just about milkshakes, also, here, I when I watch that too, when I say milkshakes, especially from that time too, I theorize that they're just talking about what we would think of as sweetened, flavored, or chocolate milk. Because, okay, so for those of you that don't know my personal history, I grew up in Georgia until I was in my freshman year of high school, at which point my family uprooted to Massachusetts. We moved to Massachusetts. Now, the first time that, that my parents ever took me for ice cream in Massachusetts, I was mad at them having moved so moved me so you know they took us to get ice cream me and my sister probably trying to give us like some summertime treat and i was i was just being my little rebellious terrible high schooler self i don't want ice cream but you know i was also a fat kid too so then i probably sort of threw in the like but i i'll take a take a chocolate milkshake now, in New England, a milkshake is not what we think of in the South as a milkshake. In the South, and in what I still believe is a milkshake, if you've ever been to Steak and Shake, which has shake in the name, if you order a milkshake, a milkshake is milk, ice cream, syrup, and whatever thing, and then they blend it all together, and it's a thick drink. A lot of places even serve it with a spoon, because you have to eat it with a spoon. It's basically ice cream. That's just blended down a little more creamy so that you can drink it. Or sometimes they'll shake it. They'll, they'll spin them in any way. Now in New England, that is called a frap. F-R-A-P-P-E. Which, and I, we should probably go into the history of that sometime on this podcast. But if you order a milkshake in New England... At least Massachusetts, I know of. They give you syrup in a glass of cold milk. I've always called that chocolate milk. I think most people call that chocolate milk. Uh, but I want to know with you guys. Did you grow up? This is sort of like that soda versus pop, uh, uh, you know, regional divide. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying it's incorrect to call that a milkshake. Milkshake has ice cream. Why? Because the na- chocolate milk, like that's that's the name. It's chocolate syrup and milk. That's literally the name. Why would you call that a milkshake? Because you gotta you gotta shake it. One also, you don't have to shake it. You probably stir it. What kind of person is making a New England milkshake in like one of those those martini drink shakers or something? Come on, New England, get your get your act together. I realize that America started there, but come on. That's ridiculous. Doesn't make any sense. Let's get back to the article. Meanwhile, Pat's father, Pat Sr., a football fanatic with anger management issues and a compulsive gambler working as a bookie, 
recruits his son as a good luck charm for their beloved Philadelphia Eagles, but also places a heavy bet on Pat and Tiffany's results in the dance competition. So what dad, what dad doesn't, right? What dad doesn't gamble on their sons? Uh, also, dance is a sport, especially competitive dance. There's, there's competitive ballroom that is scored just like, like figure skating, and figure skating is in the Olympics. In fact, the International Olympic Committee was considering adding ballroom dance, competitive ballroom dance, to the Olympics. There's several phases of making a sport an official Olympic sport. We should actually have a whole episode on dancing because I've got a lot of stories about that stuff. But so I don't, I don't see his problem having this football storyline too. That's called a subplot, and that's what makes writing good. Right? This is not a short story. Several, this, the Silver Linings Playbook was not a 500 to 1,000 word short book. It wasn't even a novella. It was, oh, well, it might have been. Let's see. I'm studying that stuff, but I don't remember the, the actual breakdown of word count for a book. It, uh, it's just a little over 200 pages. It's about a seven-hour audio book, the Silver Linings Playbook which I think puts it in novel territory, just barely like the low end of it. It could be a novella though. Either way though, a novella or a novel, both are probably long enough that they're going to need B storylines, right? I've been doing some studying because I've been doing some, some writing of short stories recently myself. And there's most of the time they're saying it is, it's more difficult to get, a subplot into a short story because you're basically doing a short story. You you're breaking down the, the writing to its most basic elements. This review has like nine storylines going through it and they're all terrible. So I don't even think that this guy went to writing school or whatever. I also, I don't even know why I'm, I keep saying school. Like it's an authoritative thing. I think uh, people do not, it just forget this guy, but don't forget it right now because we are going to go into the next things that he writes. In other words, the plot is utterly ridiculous. One, no, it's not. The characters are created merely to fulfill its requirements and whatever charm and integrity the movie possesses issues from the actors who do their damnedest to lend their script bots flesh and soul. That is so the New Yorker with this pretentious drivel. One, who talks like that too? They're damnedest to lend their script bots flesh and soul. How can you say that it's utterly ridiculous plot because the characters were created merely to fulfill the requirements? That's what characters do. I am a big fan of the Star Wars movies despite the fact I haven't seen most of them, I've seen the one, the first three are really good. So when I'm referring to star Wars, I am just talking about the movies, star Wars, uh, empire strikes back and the return of the Jedi and empire strikes back is largely thought of as the best star Wars movie out of at least those three. Guess what? That movie is full of the most ridiculous characters that are created just to move the plot along. In fact, every Star Wars movie is, right? Otherwise, I would watch 
a two hour movie on some moisture farmer just farming moisture out of the air. If I did though, I guess that would have been called Dune, right? I don't remember that movie. All I, I remember is that it had Sean Young in it. And I don't even remember Sean Young from that. I only remember her from, and not even actually from the movie Blade Runner. I just remember her hair from the cover of the movie Blade Runner because I always feel like when I get a bad haircut that I look like Sean Young. Well, that my hair does. It just does some weird things things oh i forgot to say too yeah i was telling you that whole milkshake story because i was so disappointed when when i got my milkshake because i i thought it was wrong but i was you know being however old i was like 14 15 16 and i I couldn't show that i was embarrassed so i i remember and i don't i don't have many memories (laughs) from my childhood in fact i think this is this might be the only memory i have because it was so traumatic to me um that when when my parents realized that i had ordered a milkshake and none of us they didn't know either none of us understood what the milkshake was going to be they i think they were something like oh do you want do you want to get something else did you weren't expecting that and I just played it off like, no, no, I, this is what I wanted. I'm fine with it and pretended like I knew. And they probably knew that I knew that they knew that it, that's not what I was expecting. But, you know, I'm not going to admit that to them in the same way that Pat probably knows. And he knows that his parents know and his parents know that he knows, but he's, he's not gonna, you know, admit that into his parents. It's hard to admit being wrong to your parents. So that's why you start a podcast. You complain about things. However, many years later that uh, somebody who is around 27 ish would have been compared to that. I don't know. The math's probably off on that, but hopefully I'm like Ralph Macchio looking younger than I am. I probably look exactly the same as I am. I, you know, so let me know if where you come from, whether it's a milkshake or a frap, but don't, Weigh in if you think I don't look the age that I look. Oh, man, we're we're getting close on time, and I'm only halfway through this article. That means that this guy's a terrible writer because he writes way too much. You should be able to discuss one full article in an hour, but I guess you should also be able to discuss one full movie, Silver Linings Playbook, in one article, and we are on our seventh episode, which means I've talked about this movie for over seven well, not quite, but in 10 minutes, we'll be over seven hours on this movie and a lot more to go. We are going to finish out at least the year on this. Okay, so where are we now? Okay, the Hemingway quote is again apt because early on in the film, when Pat reads A Farewell to Arms, a book that's on his estranged wife's classroom curriculum, he throws it out the window, ranting about the unnecessary heartbreak of the ending. With it, the character and Russell are throwing all of Hemingway out the window. Because of Hemingway, the irresistible unity of the character brings about its own heartbreak. The premise of the movie, of course, is the possibility of change, of bringing about happy endings through the force of will. That is simply not true. 
let's get real serious. I've been I've been sort of having fun and making jokes about this, but I, it really that's just not what it's about. I can understand somebody that has been so immersed in the French cinema having that interpretation of it, but it's just it's literally not what I think the message of this movie is because nobody talks about willing your happiness. There is discussion about willing your behavior, but that is just what I think anybody would try to do. I think the real controversy would come down to your definition of the word willing, not willing and like, are you willing to do this? But it's in willing as in like forcing about a change. Let's go back to the title silver linings and the expression that I talked about silver lining. We broke that down in that other episode that I referenced silver lining is, is an expression about finding the positive in a negative situation. And that's what this movie is about. He's not creating a positive, positive um, ending. He's not, I mean, he's finding a positive ending, but he's not creating it. He's not willing it. That's what this movie is about. There's two crazy people and they're broken. I don't think there's any reference to or suggestion that they're not crazy at the end of the movie. They're in love at the end of the movie. They find that they complete each other at the end of the movie. They didn't fix each other at the end of the movie. One of the things I applaud this film for, I think, is the fact that it does not take this interpretation that he is completely insinuating happens and, and implying into a plot that doesn't happen. It's like he he is the... You know what I'm realizing right now? He is the a farewell to arms guy. Because he's seeing this thing that doesn't exist and then thereby having like his own self-fulfilling prophecy that the movie is a lie and a failure because that's what he wants to see and ironically is creating his own, um, you know, uh, manifestation of that result. But it's just really wrong. I mean, I would, I would argue any, anybody about that. Because what I was about to get into, and I got distracted slightly, but I was saying that it's not a film about healing mental illness. It's about finding your happiness despite the mental illness. One of the lines that I always find so important and amazing in the film, I've mentioned it so many times, on this early on Tiffany says you know I was a dirty slut and I slept around but you know what I I that is always a part of me and I don't hate myself for it she is not saying that that didn't happen she's not saying that that's not okay she's saying that she has accepted it learn to live with it that's who she was and it makes it makes her who she is pat never has a moment where he sort of breaks down his problem 
in that way and accepts it. But I don't think he's any better at the end. Richard Brody keeps inferring that, oh, because he doesn't take his medicine, that he's sort of willing his way through. Also, Dr. Cliff Patel also never tells him, will yourself happy? That'd be irresponsible. I think he actually, the, the portrayal of his counseling is pretty accurate and, and responsible based on what I've experienced. He asks Pat a lot of questions. Any, any therapist, if you've been to therapy, they're, they're trying to help. They're not, you're not going to somebody. And I, I promise I have some very pessimistic and negative views towards therapy. I think a lot of people that go do very few people will go and then just all of a sudden have some day where they get like, you know, flip a switch and they're like, I'm fixed. I'm fine. I'm better. What you're doing is trying to find different tools to manage your problems. You, you, you know, and in the way I, that I still am sort of an idealist, as much as I, I can get depressed and think that the world is going to be a farewell to arms, miserable train wreck with, with no silver lining, I do kind of believe in a silver lining. you got to look for that silver lining, and it's that you will you will end up somewhere better, stronger, and more authentic than where you started. I think that you will be disappointed if you go to therapy and think I'm going to be fixed. You have a shot of, of being better. If you go with this idea, I want to be less worse. I want to have more tools to help me mitigate some of the problems I have. This quote unquote, willing, willing yourself better that, that Brody is, is, inferring is happening in this story is just simply not true of like any good therapist dr cliff patel suggests behavior changes in pat some of those are difficult like one of those when when he hears the song my sharia more by stevie wonder in the the movie and songbird in the book cliff suggests Maybe you need to not listen to that song. Maybe if you hear that, start start getting ahead of your involuntary thoughts. You know, if that song's going to trigger you, try to get out ahead of those feelings and thoughts. That's not willing yourself healed. That's using all the tools in what is an amazing machine, which is the human psyche, and trying to take the strengths that you still have left to act as countermeasures against those problems that you have from the broken parts of your brain. There is absolutely nothing wrong in that message. It is, I, I highly encourage that message. That's why you go to them because they're, they're trained. And while I think, you know, I have, we could have a whole nother series of podcasts on my personal feelings about those things and other people's experiences about those things. And, you know, I'm not a medical professional to say they're wrong. What I'm saying is that I think they're, they're more difficult that sometimes they get oversimplified by the, the, the medical community or anyway, the brain is, it's, it's a complicated thing. It's not simple. There's, like I said a second ago, it's not a switch. I think it's more of like a, a 
I don't even have an analogy. Anyway, he is just so wrong on that. Silver lining is what Pat is finding. He's not throwing Hemingway out. He's 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 throwing the book out the window because he's frustrated. He uses it as his motivation to get better. Acknowledging your problem is the first step to mitigating it. You look at any program that is meant to help you with something. You can't fix problems without identifying those problems. And that's all that they're talking about. Okay, well, it is looking like we have really gone over uh, the amount of time I meant to go into this because there is still a couple paragraphs left. There's we're about two thirds through the article, but I want to wrap up right now. We will finish going into this article next time with a little recap, but I just, Oh, anyway, if you're interested in reading it or dissecting it any further, it is a November 20th, 19, uh, 2012 article from the New Yorker. You can Google Richard Brody. You could just Google the book on silver linings playbook. And it's an article by Richard Brody. And I'm sorry. I'm not even having a fun sign off because this is just, uh, ridiculous. Also, I might slightly be exaggerating that I'm just super tired in recording. This is about, I don't know what time is it three sixteen in the morning, <laughs> but I just wanted to say I had to get it done. Kiss, kiss, finger gun. You guys know the deal. So thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. We will be back next week and every Thursday or days that are not Thursday with another wonderful edition of the Silver Linings Playcast. As far as I know, it is still the only podcast uh, that is all about Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book. Like always, we'll see you down the road and Excelsior. He's kind of crazy, she's a little insane Keeping energy really messes with his brain One is the forest, the other's husband is dead That's why it's so messed up in the head It's a silver linings playcast Oh yeah